In a plain-looking warehouse at the end of an out-of-the-way Atlantic City airport, that's where you'll find one of the nation's most important research labs. It's operated by the Homeland Security Department's Science and Technology Directorate. Its purpose is to test, validate, and even help develop the screening technologies for keeping air travel safe. I recently spent a day at the Transportation Security Lab, or TSL. Today, we start a series of interviews with lab leadership, starting with its director, Dr. Christopher Smith. He explained why the lab is part of the Science and Technology Directorate and not the Transportation Security Administration. Well, Department of Homeland Security consists of a lot of different organizations, and those organizations have needs which might be somewhat similar to TSA's needs, and the department felt it was best to consolidate the technology under one roof rather than have the components develop perhaps similar technologies which might waste taxpayers' dollars with uh, redundant development efforts. And there's also the issue of accountability and cross-referencing of people's work such that people don't get, I guess, maybe lured by their own technology or their own discoveries. That is quite correct. We are the authorized test agent for TSA, but we are, in some senses, independent of TSA. Yes, we both belong to DHS, but I do not have a reporting chain to Admiral Pekoski of TSA. So we're independent, and TSA benefits from that independence. The flying public can be quite certain that when TSA fields a device, that it has gone through third-party scrutiny. Sure. And you have really a combination of science, engineering, testing and evaluation, chemistry. Lots of things happen here. Maybe just give us the brief overview of how it's organized and what the activities are. Well, we've gone from a relatively simple problem of detecting commercial explosives, military explosives inside of checked bags to a whole host of threats that we need to contend with. The suicide bomber either wearing a explosive threat or carrying that threat on their person onto the aircraft, perhaps putting it in their shoes or their underwear, as we have seen. These threats are not just commercial or military explosives. They are homemade explosives, which is a challenge that we have risen to, but not the same as detecting conventional explosives. A lot of science that needs to go into the understanding of those homemade explosives so that we can know how they will respond to the detection technologies and make sure those technologies are tuned to those witches brews. Sure, and beyond the chemistry and the physics of all of this, it's increasingly sounds like a data-driven, data-intensive, algorithmic activity as threats multiply and the need for accuracy just keeps seeming to grow. That is quite correct, especially the imaging technologies. They produce some very precise images of threats in bags or on persons. Sometimes an image can be a gigabyte in size, and we need to take thousands of those images to test the efficacy of those systems. In the case of the new algorithms that are incorporating machine learning, we need to test sometimes tens of thousands of images. So very data-intensive, very computationally intensive. So there's a bunch of parties in this chain. There's the flying public, there's TSA, there's the TSL. There's also industry, which translates a lot of the research and development that you do here into the products that actually work on the front lines at mostly airports. And so you have an interesting relationship with industry in the sense of getting it to where what it 
builds for you is deployable in an industrial-grade setting that right. is the modern airport. Well, before I talk about industry, let's not forget the uh, national labs. PNNL has uh, developed several technologies for us. Some of those technologies are already deployed in airports. They're developing next-generation technology, which we should see in the coming years. But PNNL or TSL or TSA is not going to build and deploy their own systems. We are going to rely on private industry to engineer and develop those systems, and we are close partners with them. When those systems developers, those vendors as we like to call them, have a technology which they think is near ready for deployment to TSA, they will bring it to our developmental test and evaluation division who will assist the vendor in tuning that technology to the particular threats of interest to TSA. Once our engineers and scientists and the vendor agree that that technology is ready for independent test and evaluation, we will transition that technology over to our IT&E organization, which is TSA's authorized test agent. The Independent Test and Evaluation Organization will test that technology to TSA's requirements and will report out to TSA whether or not that technology meets their requirements and can be acquired. I guess also at the top of mind is the experience and efficacy of the TSOs themselves, the people on the front line at TSA, transportation security officers, and what you do changes their work a lot. So how does that figure into Absolutely. the equation? Absolutely. First, let me say that the TSOs do a fantastic job. The amount of things that they can detect is absolutely amazing. But what we'd really like to do with the technology is to relieve the TSO of those tasks which are subject to fatigue and turn that over to computers if those computers, if those uh, algorithms can do a better job. It's already the case that facial recognition algorithms, for example, can do a better job of picking out a face than humans can do. The same may hold true for threats concealed in bags, and if that is the case, we would like to get those machine learning algorithms performing that function and then alerting the TSO when there is an alarm to resolve, because humans are very good at resolving alarms. TSOs are very good at resolving alarms. So you've got a lot of axes to operate in because there is the need for absolute security because it only takes one explosive to get through to bring down a plane or some horrible thing like that to happen. And yet you can't make the flying public crazy such that it takes three hours every time you go to the airport to get through a line. And to date, TSA has been pretty good at getting it better for passengers. Oh, yeah. We haven't had any bad incidents. Some have been prevented. Is that a good way to describe it? It seems like you have a multi-axis mission here. Well, you're asking about TSA, and I would direct your questions on that to TSA. But in general, yes, what we are trying to do is we are trying to constantly improve the detection of threats, both the ones that we anticipate and the emerging threats of the future. We're looking to reduce false alarms to make it more convenient for passengers to get through that checkpoint. And if we can do that all on the cheap and reduce costs, that would be a great thing too. But it's not exactly a TSA question. Like we went through your lab where they are developing techniques to be able to understand what's in bottles and containers, whether it's something that's allowable or something not, spectroscopy, lots of different sciences there. And here again, that's your task to come up with that detection methodology and then turn it into an industrial reality. So you've got 
the accuracy piece. There's a lot of new science happening there. And there's also ultimately the customer experience of the flying public. So I think it is a TSL question that there's this multifaceted mission that you need to meet online. There is a multifaceted mission. We started this interview by discussing our relationship with TSA. I mentioned that we are independent of TSA, but they are very much our customer, and we will be very responsive to their requirements, to their concerns. We don't invent that ourselves. That is something that is determined by TSA and delivered to us. Now, quite often they'll come to us and ask for our advice, but it is TSA which is calling the shots on the requirements and on the types of technologies that they'll need in the airport environment. It is TSL's responsibility then to turn their vision into a reality by testing what comes to us from the vendors. Now, ultimately, the end products are acquired by TSA, but you have a role with industry that is beyond the big, well-known companies that make that equipment with their names slapped on the side that we see at the airports. And there's a lot of innovators, a lot of people thinking in small companies or non-traditional vendors, and you have a mechanism for bringing their technologies in to see if they can be brought to that level of meeting a TSA requirement. That is quite right. We deal with the big firms. We deal with some systems developers who might be out of academia, might be within the national lab infrastructure. And increasingly, when we're speaking about the brains of these systems, the software, the algorithms, we're talking about some mom-and-pop type operations out there. A lot of the automatic target recognition algorithms are developed by very bright individuals or small organizations out there, and we want to take advantage of their innovative capabilities. And maybe discuss the international angle of this, because air security, just like air traffic control, those are international activities. We very much work internationally, both with international firms. Much of the technology in our laboratory is produced by international companies. We work with international governments, friendly governments. We have an interest in supporting their ability to detect threats on their aircraft, especially those at airports, which might be the last point of departure for destinations in the United States. So, yeah, we're very much interested in working with them and harmonizing our requirements with them, especially the Europeans, because that would make their job a lot easier and our job a lot easier. But for further information on that, I am going to direct you to TSA. All right. And getting back to the TSL, you have a lot of disciplines and a lot of skills and sciences operating here. Can you run them down for us? Well, the test and evaluation teams are, for the most part, engineers, technical professionals, and folks who have experience with the design of experiments. But before we can actually test a system, we need to develop that test. The development of that test requires scientific expertise scientific expertise to develop procedures, scientific expertise to develop test tools, scientific expertise to develop the materials that we might use during test and evaluation. So we have a robust applied research division, which is populated by a bunch of very bright chemists and physicists. Yeah. And what about computational science? Because there seems to be a lot of computational artificial intelligence, machine learning being brought to bear on the data produced by the 
physical processes. Exactly. We're in the process now of hiring a machine learning expert here for TSL. We could try to treat these algorithms as black boxes, but that would result in very inefficient test and evaluation regime. Instead, what we need is the data analyst, the computer science to be able to look under the hood of those machine learning algorithms and help us explore the vulnerabilities and capabilities of those algorithms. And that does require a certain amount of expertise in machine learning in statistics and uh, linear algebra, all of those fields which go into understanding machine learning. Are there any grand design challenges, any ultimate challenges that you feel the lab has? Well, I can talk about a couple of them. Uh, The systems for passenger inspection will identify any foreign object on your body and will ask you to take that object off and put it through the x-ray machine or a TSO will otherwise inspect that object to make sure that it's not a threat. Ideally, where we would like to get with those passenger inspection systems is to be able to have the system itself make a determination on the nature of that foreign object on your body. Is it a threat or is it benign? And we've got scientists working on that right now in our laboratory. I'm old enough to remember when you flew, you got to the airport and walked on the plane. You gave somebody a paper ticket and walked on the plane. Me too. Then magnetometers came in. Is the vision someday we'll go back to walking right on the plane, only somewhere there's going to be a scanning apparatus. You might not even see it or be aware of it, but it'll flag you if you don't belong and somebody will say, excuse me, sir, go over there. Otherwise, the other 147 people walk right on. People jokingly refer to the checkpoint of the future as the, what what was that movie, the um, Arnold Schwarzenegger um, total recall system where he is uh, inspected as he's walking. You see the image of his skeleton as he's walking down the hallway. I think that that is not what TSA is striving for, and passengers will probably always notice the checkpoint, but hopefully that checkpoint will have shorter lines. There will be less divestiture. There will be less of a need for secondary inspections, uh, lower false alarm rates with all of these systems, just a whole lot faster and a whole lot more convenient for passengers and a whole lot more efficient for TSA. Dr. Christopher Smith, director of the Transportation Security Lab, part of the Homeland Security Science and Technology Directorate. There's much more to the interview. Hear it in its entirety at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. Sean Ferguson, Senior Vice President of Government Relations and Chief of Staff to the Office of the Chairman at the Special Olympics, joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss the importance of leadership, inclusion, and community building. To learn more about how you can get involved with the Special Olympics in your community, Visit specialolympics.org slash get dash involved. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. What are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned working with that community? Oh, uh, yeah, almost, uh, Shane, it's almost immeasurable. The things I've learned since I've been with Special Olympics. I um, One of the things that drew me to Special Olympics uh, when I made the move over from, from the NFL uh, was that my mother, my grandmother, my aunt all took care of of people with intellectual disabilities and 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 physical disabilities as well. So all of my life, I was uh, interacting and around um, usually usually young people, but also adults with disabilities. 
And so I, I knew that I knew that work a bit, you know, they, they basically were in direct care. And, and I will say, and on, I obviously will say about my, my family, my mother, my aunt, my grandmother, they're saints. Uh, but, uh, the, the men and women that do take care of people with uh, profound disabilities are, are really, um, you know, we, we can't do enough to salute them. Um, they're, they're really heroes. And, um, so I was, I was drawn when I, I, and I just saw that, you know, Special Olympics was looking for someone and I thought, well, you know, take a look at it and see, see, you know, throw, uh, send in my information and lo and behold, I, I, I get hired and, um, I learn, uh, every day, almost something from, especially from our athletes. Uh, we're blessed to have a number of athletes that work here in our office in Washington, D.C., and you know uh Terrell who who works in in our mailroom who comes by with packages and deliveries uh if you're having a day that's you know getting away from you and you, you <laughs> coffee hasn't kicked in but Terrell comes by always happy always enthused uh has a has a good story like it can just turn a day around for you and 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 you think of I I you know so often when he'll walk away I'll be like you know whatever was bothering me or whatever is you know, stressing me out and come on, you know, like, look at, look at Terrell, like he, he, he faces everything with optimism. And, and, and I've seen that also in our going to competitions in throughout the United States and globally, you see people who have had everything stacked against them. You know, their parents, when they were born, were often told this is a tragedy and you should, you should, you know, send your, this child away. Don't, don't, you know, and, and kind of forget about them, Get, turn them over to the state or, or wherever. And, and, you know, that, you know, just kind of wash, wash your hands of it. Um, and, and, and in, in these cases, the parents didn't do that, thankfully. Um, and, but they've still faced enormous challenges, you know, and, but you see them out competing on the basketball courts or the football fields or swimming and, uh, and, and, you know, besting their times from, from their last competition. And they're so committed and just keep fighting through all the obstacles that they've had in front of them that are not just on the sports field, but also in growing up and finding education and finding groups to be part of and trying to find jobs. And, and, and I've seen so much perseverance and grit, uh, from the athletes of Special Olympics that, uh, I, I, Tim Triver, my boss, the chairman, uh, says all the time, and I couldn't agree with him more. Uh, we get more than we give, uh, working with Special Olympics. It, you know, we, and thank you for your very kind words about the work I do and we do, but, but we're the lucky ones. We, those of us that work here are the lucky ones because I, I said to someone the other day, you know, the things that I've been able to see and experience with athletes, you just don't get to do that anywhere. That, that, you know, it's a, and it's so unique and it's so, uh, joyful. And, and uh, I mean, we work hard and, you know, we, we're up against, you know, the things that nonprofits are up against and, you know, the, you know, the issues of the day. But, uh, man, you see it, it and, and, and the inclusion and the at Special Olympics, no one's excluded. You know, no, right. no one's excluded. Everyone yeah. is equal at Special Olympics. It, and, you know, in a country that's quite divided on so many lines, politically and uh, socially, uh, economically, race and uh, sexual orientation and whatnot. But you go to Special Olympics and everyone's involved. Everyone's welcome. Everyone's equal. And I've learned that it's a model for our country and for our world. Uh, I, I just think that that if if people were involved in Special Olympics in experience the power of Special Olympics for themselves, 
I, I can't imagine that won't help our country and help our world um, to experience that true inclusion and acceptance of difference. How, how do we get, how can listeners get involved in Special Olympics? Ways to get involved? Uh, tons of ways. So uh, volunteers, obviously, coaches, officials. Um, and, and the thing that, that, that uh, Tim Shriver has done uh, and really pushed in the years that he's been chairman is the unified sports model that, that I'd mentioned earlier, um, where people, and, and it doesn't have to be, uh, it's not just school age, it's, it's uh, you know, we say nine to 99 or uh, year old uh, folks uh, that play on teams, uh, bowl together, golf together, play soccer, basketball together. Uh, people with and without intellectual disabilities competing on teams together. Um, and that is, I, I think, when you when you go back to the founding of, of our organization, what Mrs. Tri- Mrs. Shriver was trying to do uh, was to, to uh, create inclusion opportunities for people with intellectual disabilities. And you see it at these unified sports events where people with and without are playing together. We still have traditional uh, teams where it's all people with intellectual disabilities competing with other uh, teams, all intellectual disabilities. But this model of inclusive sports and inclusive leadership programs and whatnot, I think is truly revolutionizing and changing the way people see uh, others with intellectual disabilities. That's just like, I mean, that's what we that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to bring people together and bridge difference and, and, and celebrate differences and that our athletes, man, are some of the grittiest people that you will meet. And, and, uh, and there's a lot to learn from our athletes and playing sports with them and interacting is, is how you'll learn it. Check us out, uh, you know, uh, specialolympics.org on, on our website, uh, that will link you to your local program. You can follow through the, the clicks of how to get involved and where, what's closest to you. You'll enjoy it. I can promise you that. Well, thank you very much, Sean. And, and to everybody listening, I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and we'll, uh, talk to you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.